What's up, everyone? My name is Joshua, and welcome to a conversation with Joshua T. Berglin. I am so excited to have you here today. I want to give a quick shout out to all of you who have subscribed to the membership-only platform. Thank you so much. We have started self-hosting our content. We started it about, I guess, a couple months ago. And to everyone who subscribed, thank you. Those of you that subscribe know that you get access to all of the videos that are available. And it just means a lot to me, those of you who do that. Now, the podcast is free, but also I want you to know that every membership that's sold or any service that's sold is buy one, give one. So if you buy one, you get the opportunity to give one and gift one to someone else. That could be media company in a box services. It could be just for the broadcast. Any of the services that are available, you can go to pricing at joshuatberglund.com and you can see all that we offer. And again, it's buy one, give one. So anything you buy from me, you get to give one to someone else. And all you have to do once you buy is you name who you want to give it to. There is no questions asked about that. And also want to give you one other piece of information. If you are interested in any of our services, there's a 15-minute free consultation. That way you can find out if any of these services are for you. But I will tell you this. There's a lot you can get out of me in 15 minutes. So this 15 minutes would not be wasted. You will see all of the value that's available to you. This is a little new for me because I don't typically pitch all of my services at the opening of a broadcast. But I do want to put that out there because I am just so honored that everyone that is prescribed, prescribed, <laughs> subscribed, this is not medication. Although it could be good for the soul. I am grateful because listen, self-hosting was the only path for me because getting kicked off of all of the other networks and all the social media platforms, I'm on Twitter now, but I'm under the world's mayor hiding because my, my name is not allowed there. But nonetheless, self-hosting was the only way, but it's also the future of any broadcaster that really has any sense or wants to just be free to talk about the subjects that they care about without censorship and just having that freedom. But also, more importantly, it's about owning your likeness. Every single one of you are worthy of monetizing your intellectual property, every bit of it. However you deem necessary to put your intellectual property out into the universe that provides value for should own your likeness. You should own your image. You should own your branding. And when you're on someone else's platform, you get to adhere to their rules and you also get to split the money with them. So now for us, in our mission, we do buy one, give one because our mission, which I will not go into, is very important to us. And you can read about that on my website. All right. Today, without further ado, and I almost wish I didn't do this whole talking about my services ahead of this, because I want to tell you, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this broadcast today. Phyllis is here today and her background working with sexual abuse and dysfunctional families or people that have gone through sexual abuse and dysfunctional families is inspiring work. I, being somebody that was sexually abused by men and women, know the consequences of this, of not having a safe place to go. My whole life, those of you who have read The Devil Inside Me, our book, which is also at my website, you know the consequences that not only that I put on other people, that I dealt with myself, and even the consequences that I can't escape, even seven years removed from that past life, having HIV, not having 
the opportunity to see my twins yet, because I believe that God is going to make that happen also. But anytime I meet somebody that works with sexual abuse victims, my heart immediately melts because I know how challenging it is to rehabilitate your life, my life, how hard it was to rehabilitate mine. And so anyone who dedicates their life to that kind of work is always going to be special to me. So without further ado, please welcome Phyllis Levitt. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a conversation with Joshua T. Berglund and Phyllis Levitt. Phyllis, I am so honored to have you here today. As I said in my intro, anyone who does and has dedicated their life to the work that you do is aces in my book, because I know how challenging it was my road to recovery. And it's been complex, it's been challenging. And without people like yourself or people like me to be able to go to and learn from and help, what's the word I'm looking for? Retransform or what's the word? Reframe the way that we look at things, the, the different techniques and healing our trauma, all of that. I am so grateful for people like yourself because without you, people like me don't go on to heal. And mm -hmm. I, so I just wanna say thank you out of the gate and without further ado, before we get started, I would love to know, what are you grateful for today and why? It's a long list. I'm grateful. <laughs> I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful for this beautiful planet that I get to live on. I'm grateful for my husband and my children and my grandchildren that I love with all my heart. And I'm grateful for the work that I have been able to do over so many years with all the help that I have received along the way that's made it possible for me to be here with you today the way that I am and to have the things that I share. All of that wouldn't be possible with the help and love of um, help from many sources, let's just say it that way. So that's the beginning of a list and I'm sure I'll add things later on. <laughs> that's a good list. I like it. All right. So your work with sexual abuse victims, to me, is what sticks out. And then also working with the families, too. That part is super important as well. In fact, yeah. I often think that if my parents would have known what was happening to me, maybe early intervention could have set, on, set in. With that said, what inspired you to work with sexually abused kids? Part of it, I think, was from the unconscious, because I really started on that path before I had all the memories that I had. So I think some part of me was just steering me in the direction that I needed to go. But once I got in graduate school, my own memories started to be revealed to me. And like you, I had a time in my own process of which which was a moment that I moved through, but it was a profound moment of grief of what could my life have been like had this not happened to me? or had someone helped me. And until that point in my life, I was really a mystery to myself. I had no idea where I was coming from or why there seemed to be such a dark cloud hanging over me and why I felt so alone, why I felt so other. And once I began to remember what happened to me, it was like this huge puzzle that had been spilled on the floor. All the puzzle pieces started to reassemble and I got it. I started to understand myself. And I think my path in life has been just endless self-inquiry that has morphed into not just who am I and why am I the way I am or drawn to what I am, but who are we mm. and what influences us and why are we the human race the way we are and 
Where are we going? Because basically what, and what I'm writing a lot about in the book that I'm writing now, which is about bringing America to therapy, is the microcosm and the macrocosm are undeniably linked. So who I am as an individual and who you are and who millions of people are makes up humanity. And so if we're not healed and we're suffering, and many people are, that was one of my big ahas. I'm not alone. There's millions of people out there like me, and they're not just suffering millions. from sexual abuse or physical abuse. They're suffering from poverty. They're suffering from discrimination. They're suffering from war. They're suffering from losing their homeland. So there's all kinds of trauma that people don't have any help for. And like me, may not have even known they needed help for because they just blamed themselves for what they were experiencing. Gosh, I, so this, that response has triggered a lot of different memories, not in a bad way, but good memories. I remember right after being molested by the two guys, just before being molested by my babysitter that was female, I remember mm -hmm. like being really scared. At the same time, what I've been able to do over the years is start to realize that I think that there's a part of me that believes that I attracted this into my life because I think that for all the years that I struggled and battled with my sexuality and not knowing what was real, I seem to remember some of the events that took place before I was molested that has made me believe that maybe I attracted this and maybe the confusion around my sexuality wasn't so much from being molested. I think a lot of it had to do with religion, where I grew up, the things mm -hmm. that I was being told. And then of course, after being molested, being told that if you say anything, we're going to whip your ass and humiliate you and do a lot of bad things to you. So that, but I remember when I was acting out and getting in trouble because I needed to tell somebody because I didn't know what was going on with me. I don't know why I was having the nightmares I was having, but yet at the same time going, okay, this felt good, but then it was painful. Okay, this is weird. I don't understand this. Why are people, why, why all of a sudden am I hearing people calling me a faggot? Why am I hearing all these words? It was very confusing. So then right. I go to my guidance counselor and I hear the words, and this is years later. She told me, she goes, oh, that's normal for little boys to do. And I'm like being forcibly anally penetrated and forced to do world. This is very odd. Okay, this is normal. Caused even more confusion. Then hearing it through at church and other places, homosexuals go to hell. So there was a lot of warfare that was built in from the very beginning that I don't even know what was worse, being molested or all of the verbal things that I was hearing. I know that part alone and not having a safe place to go, not, not having anyone to talk to, not understanding what was going on was horrifying. And that set off the course for a very, very dark and scary life for most of my life. But yeah. ultimately, looking back at it, I think the biggest sin out of all of it was that I learned to lie. I learned right. to, lie to protect secrets, not only what happened to the people that hurt me, but even my family's secrets and then started to protect my own. Ultimately, I think that was the worst thing that could happen. Now, in your professional career and your expertise, can you speak to any of what I just said? Absolutely. I think there's really two parts to the trauma, and I'll speak to sexual abuse, but I think this generalizes out into any trauma. And especially those that are perpetrated at human hands. And that is, there's the trauma itself. There's the actual sexual abuse, the violation of your body that's terrifying, that is 
unwanted, that sometimes is painful, sometimes is pleasurable. And that's part of the trauma. But in any case, there's, I'm sorry. I said that part's the mind F of it all. Is that something hurts and feels good at the same time? I had a four-year-old that I saw years and years ago who had been molested and he, he was very young, obviously. And actually the molest was revealed by his older brother. And he said to me, he just looked at me so innocently one day and he said, but I liked it. And it was just tragic. It was just absolutely tragic because our bodies are also made to feel pleasure as well as But the but what I wanted to say is that there's two parts. There's what happens. There's the violation to your body, and there's the response or lack thereof. And for so many people, they don't tell anyone like you for shame, for fear, for believing that it really was their fault, and there's something wrong with them that's going to be revealed if they tell. But also because there's and because there's danger, and because as a society we have taken a long time to believe our victims. And there's shame and blame societally, not just in, not just from the perpetrator or the family or people, the church, for instance, but there's societal shame and blame of people who are molested and if, we're, if we stay with sexual abuse. And, and there's also a lot of cases, and we know this from reading the news and reading people's stories, that even when cases have gone as far as to go into the justice system, they're not always dealt with justice. Yeah. Also goes too far. It's you have the false allegations as well that are really terrifying. It's a very, it almost seems not fair. And I'm not a victim. I don't look at myself as a victim at all. I've gotten to this place where I'm grateful for my trauma because of what it's fueled me to do today. And also because I have done and do the work to heal, remain healed and continue to grow and to become who I was created to be. And, uh, but that's not an easy path, but it, stepping into it the whole thing doesn't feel right because it doesn't seem like there's a safe way to go thinking about human trafficking for instance i think that i don't know exact the percentages i forget it's somewhere in the 90s the 90 something percent of victims go back to their abductor because the devil is better than the one you don't so we don't have resources in place and mind you it's better than it used to be but it's not good enough it's not good enough for people to, there's not a safe place for go whip battered women that, that, that are being abused and they're maybe a single mother and they're stuck because they're financially dependent on their husband. Yeah. But also, let's just go with little boys. Little boys become, that are abused have the opportunity to become monsters if they're not helped, if they don't have a safe outlet. If, they're, if they learn to lie and they don't learn to speak the truth or they don't learn to share what's going on with them in a loving environment like that. And even, oh, and here's that. And here, the danger of even sharing is sometimes when you share and you're vulnerable with someone else about what happened to you, you get set up to be molested again. And that happened to me. That happened to me when I was 19. So it's just, there's a lot of landmines. In your opinion, what can we actually do to provide safe, a safe place for abuse victims to go heal and rehabilitate their life because I will, the other thing I want to say to this, a lot of sexual abuse victims become unsafe to be around other people. Like I wasn't safe to be around other people yet. Here I was getting in and out of relationships and wrecking homes and destroying kids' lives and everything else. Mm -hmm. Like what can be- I think that I want to jump out in response to what you're saying to the big picture, because I think what can be done is 
that we really urgently need to educate ourselves that what we're seeing, like, so I'll back up here for a second. So I was trained in lots of different kinds of therapy. And one of the major kinds of therapy that I feel really puts an umbrella around humanity today that we desperately need is family therapy. Mm. We're not islands. We didn't become who we are just because there's something intrinsically wrong with us or we're wired weird, right? We have all this conditioning from our families. And then what family systems theory really helped us understand is that the family goes beyond the family of origin. It's your community, it's your peer group, it's your workplace, and it's your government, it's your church. It's These are all family systems that we are conditioned by. We're given certain expectations. We're shown how to, how or not how to resolve conflict. We're given the roles for male and female. All of these influences come from the largest and the smallest family system influences that each person has. And so as a country, I'm going to jump out to the country, but I'm really talking about all the family systems. As a country, we... I think we're I think we're getting there, but I think we still have a long way to go. We are in desperate need of understanding that this really links to what you're saying about the danger that is inherent in being abused. We are in desperate need of understanding that our victims are very likely to become perpetrators. There's two big outcomes for perpetration. Let's just say it in a family, but this is across the board. The two biggest outcomes, if there's no intervention and no help and no treatment, are the one that you mentioned, which is called identification with the aggressor and becoming the aggressor. And that, I think, a lot stems from, I am never going to be a victim again, so I'm going to be the top dog. And there may be other influences around that. But And the other one is learned helplessness. I have learned that fighting for myself, standing up for myself, saying something, telling someone does no good, or it brings even worse abuse on me. So I become passive and helpless. I no, go ahead. And I want to say, and sometimes they're both combined and it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy of what we do to one another without really looking at the cycle that perpetuates it. So if we're talking about healing on an individual level or on a community level or a gender level or national level, we have to look at the victim inside the perpetrator. We have to have also, yes, there are certain people that we don't know how to treat and they're a danger to society. Yes, absolutely. But there are many people who are treatable. There are many people, if they were given a safe place to just own both the victimization and the victimizing that they have experienced, they could heal. Yeah. I And I healed. I, for me, I struggled with everything, the nightmares and night mm -hmm. terrors of being molested and going through that process. And then I remember in college, the very first time I did drugs, it was like immediate that the nightmare became a fantasy. And my and so the way the universe works is yeah. that the first time I did drugs, it was also the opportunity to be in a, a sexual situation that was similar enough to what had happened when I was molested. So I got to reframe what happened to me with drugs. And then all of a sudden, I started down this path, which I, of course I didn't know at the time what it was, but I became a chemsex addict 
immediately. Mm. That feeling of taking the pain away was yeah. so amazing. And so I was recreating all of my fetishes and all of my sexual tastes were created out of my trauma. So was molested by men and women. So I, two guys and a girl became this thing for me. And then it evolved and got crazier and crazier, which I won't go into those details. But then because I was a chronic cheater, because I was too honest, I was not honest. I would take that back. I was such a liar and so afraid to be honest about what I really wanted or what I thought I wanted that I would sneak around and cheat. Mm -hmm. I was a chronic cheater. I finally got cheated on and I got, and I found out in the most horrific way possible. But because I was so codependent also, I stayed in that relationship. And I remember one time it was like, I was, she lived an hour and a half away and we were in the middle of having sex. And I said, and I, I remember looking at her and I said, you're thinking of him, aren't you? And she said, yeah, I'm thinking of him effing you and the beep. And that just came out of nowhere. So mm -hmm. in that moment, I then got addicted to wanting to be cheated on. Mm -hmm. I reframed it in that moment to take the pain away of hurting of being cheated on, even though I'd hurt many others. I be turned that into a fantasy. Mm -hmm. So I got into the cuckold and hot wifing and all that crap. And that became an addiction. This is, I've never understood this. But part of my healing journey, and then get, got, obviously getting off drugs has helped a lot, became a lot of uncertainty in knowing what was real, what was healthy. What is there a safe way to express this? Or is this even what I really want? That was one of the biggest struggles for me in my recovery. Now, what I've learned is, now that I've rehabilitated my life, that I don't want a lot of those things because I value what I have in my wife and my kids more than I do anything else now. My sexuality be damned because my sexuality is still complicated and all over the map. However, I found something that I value more than gratifying mm -hmm. myself sexually. Not that I don't want sex anymore, but it's taken years of work to get there. So the reason I said all of that is because I want to ask you, is part of the healing process the reframing of the trauma or is it something else? I think it's a lot of things. Definitely reframing the trauma. But tell me what you mean by reframing it. Are you talking about it really wasn't my fault? What are you talking about the reframe being? Taking the pain of the trauma and turning it into a fantasy, for one. That's yeah. one example of many I could give you. But that's the main one. Is the things that used to hurt me, I found a way for me to have power over it. So even in my situations where I'm, a, I'm drugged out of my mind and I'm having sex with all of these people I don't know over a four-day meth binge. Like, I'm in this position where, yeah, I'm recreating my rape scene, more or less, but I'm in control of it, is right. how I'm treating this. In other words, it's me asking for this, therefore I have power over it now. Absolutely, that is what some people do. That is absolutely one of the most common responses to, to reframe it in that way, in some way. Overpowered me, I am now going to overpower, or I'll be the, I'll be the one on top. That, I would say that's a compensating mechanism. It certainly isn't healing. No, it, <laughs> I ended up with <laughs> HIV, so it's definitely not healing. Okay. <laughs> but we're in agreement there. Yeah. So, <laughs> It's a compensation. I think that's why if I if it's okay if I zoom out a little bit to yeah. national and come back, because I think that what you're talking about is also why so many people 
who have identified with the aggressor in some part of their process of responding to abuse will actually idealize other aggressors. And I think we see that happening nationally, that there are a lot of people that I would say are essentially feeling powerless and overwhelmed who cannot tolerate that feeling. So they've identified with the aggressor in their own lives. And then they idealize the bully on the playground, whether it's in the schoolyard, in the office, in the corporation, or in the government. And this is really dangerous, really dangerous. And I feel that it's happening. I think we, we see that it's happening in a mushrooming way. This kind of identification and goading on the aggressor is all over the news. These are the role models our children are seeing of how people in power behave and are allowed to behave. So I had to segue out there because I just see what you're talking about as having implications for really on the on beyond the national level, but on the global level for whether we're going to make it or not as a species. That's yeah. really, that's how I see the microcosm and the macrocosm absolutely undeniably intertwined and we need to heal on both levels. Oh, you're, you're a hundred percent right. I, for me, it started with, I learned about soul ties and I sometimes have to trick myself into healing because I can get comfortable a certain way of living, but I also can recognize that it's not serving me. So I find ways to trick myself into action or to change. And I learned about soul ties. And for me, it was like, okay, so I'm actually exchanging DNA with all of these people. And so their DNA is with me. And I won't go into that whole discussion, but that is what helped me become a little bit more cautious and less slutty. Because it might be in less slutty was a progression. Find the term just so I, I'm not sure I know what that term means. Slutty? No, soul pods. Oh, soul ties. In other words, soul ties. Okay. Soul ties. So anytime we were exchanging DNA during sex, and then there's a whole deep belief in that. That said, that was enough for me to step back long enough to go, maybe I shouldn't do that. Now it's a progression and it's taken a lot of work to finally get there to where I can truly see is my body is a temple, the way I treat myself, who I sleep with, what I eat, what I drink, all that stuff has an effect on me. Right. And including who I have sex with. That matters. And you think that HIV would have helped me get that. But the truth is, it didn't mm -hmm. at all. That didn't make it register to me, except for the fact that I had to tell people that I had HIV. You'd right. be surprised how many people just don't care. <laughs> and then some of the people that cared did surprise me. But nonetheless, yeah. like those kind of things did help me slow down enough, which I think helped me yeah. snap out of that repetitive cycle and addiction and all that. But honestly, what it came down to for me was learning to tell the truth. Yeah. And then in yeah. walking in that truth, like one, sharing what happened to me. Okay. Then sharing about the struggles and the journey trying to overcome because I left being a chem sex addict to being a sex addict and then breaking out of that. It's mm -hmm. been a really long road, but ultimately I keep going back to being able to not just tell the truth, but actually being comfortable to talk about it has yeah. been the best therapy in the world for me. So I use my talk show, my yeah. original very beginning one, because I felt in my spirit that God wanted me to put a spotlight on my shadow world. In fact, I think I heard him say it or her say it yeah. or whatever yeah. God is yeah. and put a spotlight on your shadow world. I'm like, this makes sense because now I can't keep secrets and I love to keep secrets. 
So when I got comfortable telling the truth and talking about that, yeah. ultimately that served as my healing journey. And Absolutely. I did it myself talking to the camera basically. And yeah. along the way, getting feedback from other people, all of that really helped. So when you talk about family therapy, to me, this makes sense because you get the, in that setting, you get different perspectives. Right. And also you put yourself in a position where people can actually hear you and know how to support you. Is that a lot to do with why you believe in group therapy so much, group family therapy? Absolutely. There's a couple of reasons and I probably won't remember them all, but one of them is the one I said before that we are all at the effect of other people. So to really understand both ourselves and the dynamic playing out in the family, we have to understand how we come together and impact each other. So if you have an abuser in a family, there's going to be a definite impact on the on their spouse and children that is not going to be positive yeah. and can take all kinds of symptomatic forms of becoming aggressive, becoming withdrawn, becoming an addict. There's a million different symptoms that appear. If you have a family system that's relatively healthy where people talk and they share feelings and they laugh and they look out for each other's welfare and they are rooting for each other to succeed, then you have a whole different outcome for the people in that family. And those those people are far less likely. And of course, none of those families are perfect. We know we're all human. But in general, when people feel loved and taken care of and valued, they're very much not the candidates to to join a terrorist cell. They're not. So we have to look at that on a on the micro and the macro. How are we treating whole populations of people in the American family? How are we treating black people? How are we treating native people? How are we treating women? How are we treating the disabled? How are we treating Muslims? It goes on and on. And so yeah. for every group that we target and criticize and blame and attack and murder, we are creating a tidal wave of people who are going to have their symptoms be glaring in our in our society and our country. And as you probably know, there's just yet another shooting yesterday. And this epidemic, epidemic. So we have to ask ourselves, who are these people? They're not loved people. They're no. not who are welcomed into our society and given a place and provided for. These are people who are hurting. This is, this makes my blood just boil because everything that you just said, I don't support agendas. Like I'm not, I don't, the LGBT community, I support the agenda that's pushing it. I don't like, there's a big difference between both. Mm -hmm. A lot of these causes get weaponized. And I'm not going to speak out against all of them and name names and all that, but people know right, the right. gay community and the bisexual community is furious at the LGBT community because they're taking what they fought for and are just, they're it's, perverting. It's not even the word because it's something else. It's something more sinister in my opinion. But that said, this is the cause of people not being heard. I remember about four or five years ago, I did an episode called Going Deeper. And it was at the exact moment I'd been really outward. I had not been real outspoken about my sexuality, my struggle with it. I talked about it a little bit, but I'd never been so bold, even as a man of faith, to just say, mm -hmm. this is what's going on. This is who I am. This is where it was at. But I felt inspired to do this broadcast called Going Deeper 
And it was essentially what triggered the, the desire to do it was that two Christians I knew had committed suicide because they were bisexual and they were thought they were going to hell. And, and I know what the Bible says and all that, and like, is a man of faith. I struggled with this. And then I forced, I did the research and I discovered the truth about how the word was put there, how it wasn't even invented until 150 years ago. And I found that, but that's taken years. That was years later. But I just think about how all these people will speak out against gay and bisexual men and women, and even the trans community, and they speak out and they lash out against it without having a freaking clue. Again, some of this trans movement stuff is too far for me. But that said, I know trans people because I used to hang out and have sex with some. I got to know a lot of people in that community. If you don't understand something that doesn't give people permission to bastardize it or to criticize it or judge it or ridicule it because you have no idea where it comes from. I don't know if I was born bisexual. I have no idea, but I do know that being molested a few different times by men didn't help at all. And then, of course, then my behavior afterwards with the drugs and sex and sleeping with whoever didn't help either. So I don't know if I just train myself to be this way. I have no idea. But the fact is this, until I could accept the fact that God loved me the way that I was and then start make loving decisions for myself, I had no chance of ever being able to love anybody. But I'll tell you one thing that doesn't help is when people are going, you're going to hell. You're, you're going to hell. Yeah, you're, 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 what is it called? What do they say in the Bible? You are not a disgrace. You're an abomination. Those words don't say come to Jesus. Those words don't say God loves you. It drives me insane how we do this to people. We are all God's children. We are all here. Like the way that we treat each other, regardless of religion, regardless of like, it's just awful. Like, we are so ugly to each other, yet at the same time, we don't even understand what we're, what is, where does that come from? What causes that? I think it it comes from the same place that identification with the aggressor comes from. It It's a disowning of your own wound and its impact on you that you project onto somebody else. And the more the shadow, as you call it, and I call it too, is disowned, the heavier the projection is going to be onto somebody else. And the way human beings seem to on operate is that we find a target audience. It's black people or it's gay people or it's women or it's Muslims. And we find an audience that we think is other and we can call other and we project all of our unknown shadow onto them. And it becomes, it's not just hatred and discrimination and persecution, it's murder. So, this is comes back to why I feel that some of the key elements of psychotherapy and psychology are what are so deeply needed by all of us individually and as a country, because the principles of psychotherapy, for instance, are completely different from the things that you're describing. We help people sit down and listen to each other and listen deeply. And I'll give you a beautiful example that that kind of zooms it out to the macrocosm. There was a wonderful man who lived in Santa Fe years ago named Craig Barnes, and sadly he passed away. But he was an international mediator. And I went and heard him talk one time. And I'll never forget what he said. So he would be brought in to help mediate armed conflict in other places. I believe it was armed conflict. And he said that the first thing he did was he asked each side to share their pain. Mm. 
the people they had lost, the villages that had been destroyed, the temples that had been torn down, whatever it was. And that's, and he just, that's all that they did to begin with. They listened to each other's pain. And he created by his being, because he was a beautiful, loving, wise person, he created this space for that kind of listening. And once people heard each other's pain, so much of the discord dropped away, and at least it provided a foundation for coming to some kind of truce or agreement or even other levels of healing. And that's the basic principle in family therapy. You, We help people listen to each other without judgment, without attack, without getting up and walking out, without screaming. And so these are the things that I wrote a little bit about this in my new book about what if we could have a government like that where such divisiveness is just like raging on the floor of Congress and people are calling each other's names and putting them down and tweeting whatever. (laughs) What if we were actually committed as a country to healing our human relations? If we had mediators in our own Congress facilitating each other, listening deeply, not just to their opposing views, but to where they're coming from and what pain might be fueling the ferocity of their position or their attack. We have so many tools in the world of psychotherapy that we could use, but we don't. Politics today in America, as far as I can see, is devoid of a conversation about love, about caring, about tolerance of diversity, about providing for all, about safety. We're investing billions of dollars in more weapons that could kill millions and billions of people. Billions. Oh, yeah. And big pharma's role in all this too. And psychotherapy and psychiatry are two different fields, correct? I'm not a psychiatrist, but yeah, I don't deal with medication. No, I, I, yeah. And I'm, that's because I'm very outspoken against big pharma. I, and the way the field of psychiatry, because especially the way that it's gone and what it's turned into. I remember being on nine different medications and just, and I, and ultimately it just made it worse. It made my desire to do drugs worse. It just, it was awful. And, uh, but I finally got off all of that six years ago and it's helped. And I was diagnosed with disassociative identity disorder after being misdiagnosed with schizophrenia and multiple other things. But my official diagnosis became disassociative identity disorder. I've managed to heal from it, no medication, learning to retrain triggers, having an amazing wife who's loved me through it all. She's learned she the setting and keeping boundaries, having me, me having a safe place to go when I switch, all that stuff. I've been blessed with the opportunity to create a bubble around me to help me heal so I could step out of that bubble and take on the issues that I get and I was created to take on. But I couldn't do that before because if I switch, I probably, I wasn't safe. I wasn't safe to be around. That's just the fact. And part of what our book, The Devil Inside Me, is about is essentially that. But I, it's, it's like, it, but it can be done and it's worth doing. Like anyone out there that's listening, that's been sexually abused or even physically abused, the work to healing from your trauma, not only is it worth doing, the freedom that you have on the other side and the compassion that you have for the others that are still there that it's purpose changing. It's like, it's life giving in itself. So it's worth doing the work you have. You have a new book coming out that you've talked about 
but you also have A Light in the Darkness and Into the Fire. Can you share a little bit about those two books and then tell us about your new book? Sure. I'd love to. I had a remarkable experience that I am forever grateful for. So if we go back to the grateful conversation, this one is very much near the top or at the top of the list because there's so many at the top of the list. I My experience of sexual abuse was... Um, was the way I responded to it was different than you, equally tragic because it devastated my life. But I basically shut down and and I really did not want to be in my body. And But then when I left home, I just had no ability to say no to anyone that wanted to have sex with me. So I hated myself. I just, I there was no in my throat. There was no in my being because I had been overpowered. At a very young age. And so I went on a long, I went, my real quest for healing took, I was, I was back to the sixties and I, I met a lot of people. I was in, in school in New York city and I met a lot of people that were part of the hippie generation. And there was a lot of being drawn to spirituality and that's the path that I took. And I ended up in a Gurdjieff group and Gurdjieff, G.I. Gurdjieff. Yeah. He's probably not super well-known. He was an Eastern mystic who, I don't remember what country he was born in, but he found his way as a seeker to these very remote temples and was trained in some kind of spiritual practice that he then brought to the West. And he had a a group of people that he was training in Paris. And the teacher that I had was one of his students who had come to America. And he was really speaking to this younger generation that I was a part of at the time. And it was a practice of observing yourself and creating. And the idea was to create a different consciousness with which to understand yourself. I never got too far, I have to say, in that practice. Because of sexual abuse, I needed something that was more emotional. And this was, for me, it was a more of an intellectual approach. So I learned a lot being in that group. And when this was when this man died, a lot of people went then to... Swami Muktananda, who had come over from India, and he had an ashram not too far from where we lived. And I went there. And all along my life, let me just say, I had moments of really divine connection, just inexplicable experiences of divine love or connection to a oneness that were profound, but very fleeting. And in the wake of them, I would feel even more distraught and alone and lonely and dark and like a failure. And I had some of those experiences at the ashram with Muktananda. And then he died. And and I wasn't there very long. And then I had a profound experience. I was talking to a man in that group who had migrated from the Gurdjieff group. And he was talking about how he was learning Sanskrit and how he was he had mala beads. And he was so devoted and he was so excited. And I saw something in myself in him. I was not like that. But what I saw when I looked at him, and this was my projection, may have had nothing to do with him, was I looked at him and I thought, he just wants to be loved by God. And that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to get God to love me. I don't love myself. And I am not loved in the world of people. And I don't know how to love in the world of people. And I was in a very unhappy marriage at that time. And I went to therapy. That was it. I have got to figure this out. This I'm not going to figure it out by a spiritual path. What I'm getting is beautiful, but it's not healing me. And then I became a psychotherapist and all that. And I went into the dark night of the soul for quite a long time as the memories started to surface. And all that to say, 
that really sounds like somebody else's story, but it happens to be mine. And it's still incredulous to me. I really was just at a terrible place. I had so much anxiety. I had a hard time sleeping. I just felt like I was never going to heal. And I kept a journal because I've always been a writer. I kept a journal and I kept it all the time. And I sat down at my journal one day and I literally said, God, I give up. I really don't know what to do next. And at that moment, I heard a divine voice start speaking to me about what my soul was doing in these experiences, what the path was that Phyllis was on, what all of us are doing here in human form with all of the, all of what we carry in our ego consciousness as both wounds and gifts. And I do want to say that because I don't want to only talk about the wounds because there are gifts as, as you have uncovered and that the wounding covers over the gifts a lot of times, but they're there. There's an essential person. And that's what got connected to me. There's an essential person beneath everything that's happened to us, everything that we've done. We are not that in our essence. And, and our essence is connected to this, what I would call divine love and wisdom. And for some reason, I was blessed with having this experience that it was just given to me. And so my first two books are all about those messages that I received that had to do with my personal life, but really had to do with all of humanity. And at least from the point of view of that consciousness, what we're doing here. And, and I will say without going into those messages, cause that's what those, that's what's in my books and it's a long story and I haven't even written them all without going into the messages themselves. I will say that there was never a moment of judgment of me of anyone, of any of us, no matter what we have done, we are. And so when you're talking about your past and I'm talking about my past, I wasn't the best mother. I was depressed and shut down and in the thick of my own uh, inner work that was very painful. And I wasn't present some of the time in ways that I look back on and I feel terrible about. And I'm very grateful my children have all come out as beautiful human beings, but they didn't they had a rough start in their life. And I'm responsible for that in a way that I can have compassion for as well. I, God, I was just, it makes me think of my kids. I have twins and I have an older daughter. My oldest daughter is like in and out of my life because I wasn't there either. I didn't know about her until she was three and a half. Her mom was an addict. I was an addict. It was ugly. And, and my twins who I gave up for adoption that I still believe that one day will come back in my life. And But I'm grateful that as my heart changed and I started to grow and become more of a man that I was blessed with another opportunity to be married to the right person and also right. get two children. I get an opportunity to do it over with, do it over again and do not, I can't wrong the rights of my past, but I am getting another opportunity at where I had failed before. And I'm grateful for that because I get to do the things that hated my dad so much and then realized that I had become just like him, but worse. So when I'm just so grateful that I got that chance, you got a chance with your own children to write the ship. Grateful I get this opportunity now because it's made this journey worth it. And it's given me hope that my other children will come back and I'll get that opportunity too. Mm -hmm. It's such a beautiful thing. Like healing is worth it. If anything is to experience love, not giving love is one thing. And actually being able to give somebody love 
without going, all right, now I want to get in your pants is awesome. And being able to experience love, especially a child's love. Oh God. It's, I remember when they yes. went park for the first time, it was like a year into my relationship with Jessica. And I remember just the heartbreak that came from those two little girls. And I'm like, oh man, I am done now. Now that my heart's opened up to be broken, I'm screwed now. Yeah, but, yeah. But I'm, I, it's, a, it's such a blessing to have. And again, to anyone out there that's been sexually abused and or physically abused and you haven't started this healing journey yet, it's worth it. It's so worth it. And it may, for me, it started with surrendering all the things that didn't serve me anymore. Bring anger, surrendering, surrendering resentment, but also surrendering relationships that were still causing pain. That's how you kickstart this process. And as painful it is as it is, it's worth it because there is a beautiful life ahead of you. You're an example of this. And you are a beautiful example of this. And, and I think that is actually what most of our human journey is. We, I, we didn't come here perfected. And I think if we were supposed to, we would have. And I think we are actually making a journey from the what my, my divine guidance called the sleep of forgetting of who we really are to awakening to be a channel in ourselves, in our own human way for some portion of divine love that we share with the world. And I think that the journey that we make is the access and it's also the light that we hold, if we can, for anyone else who is afraid to make the journey or is on the journey. And I've had so many people come to me and say, I don't want to cry. I just feel like if I start crying, I'll never stop. And the truth is, we do stop. <laughs> we do. You're held in a place of understanding and safety where you can speak all your truths. That's what was missing. We didn't have it. And so the tears do stop and the essential self, self starts to emerge. And like you said, there is nothing more valuable than that. There's no experience greater than that, I think, as a human being. And one of the things I want to say, if I can segue a little bit out to the book that I'm writing now, and I'm happy to come back also to the others, is that part of what you illustrate so beautifully, and I think part of what the best psychotherapy makes possible is... We can own the truths that are not pretty. We can stand in the truth of things that we have done that have hurt other people or where we've been absent or where we failed ourselves or whatever it is and not be judged, but still have that like envelope of compassion around us that understands that even whatever we did, we actually were doing the best we could. It wasn't good. And we <laughs> no, hurt, no. <laughs> hurt a lot of people, but we didn't. If we had known better, we would have done better. If we had been given better, we would have done better. And for me, I feel like that is something that our country has not yet learned. And it's critical. If we want to heal as a country, we have to own as a country the things that we have done that have hurt millions of people. Oh, my God, yes. You know, with no excuse with no justification with no but with no and we have to look in the face of the atrocities that we have committed and still commit and own them and at the and without denying that we have beautiful strengths We're, there's wonderful people in this country there's wonderful movements in this country there's wonderful organizations and causes in this country 
just like an individual, we have our wounds and we have our darkness and we have our shadow and we have our own things that we've inflicted that have not been good on other people. And we have beauty and we have to know that we have both because where the beauty is the hope, where the essential mm -hmm. self is the hope. And one of the things that I looked a little bit into when I was writing my book was the truth and reconciliation that happened in South Africa. And while it wasn't perfect because it was a learning, it was amazing what happened that in the space, and again, there I don't know what perfection would have been because in order for the people who had committed the crimes against Black people and in apartheid, they only agreed to participate if they were given amnesty. So there was no consequence for what they had done, but they came and they told what they did and they were heard and they listened to the impact of the pain and the violence and the murders that they had committed on the surviving victims. That's a really good place to start. Yeah. And I know it happens on a small scale in therapy. It happens, it happens, and it works. It works when it's well-facilitated and people feel safe and they feel safe from judgment and attack. They can be honest about where they have been and they can listen to the pain they have inflicted and they can heal. And so many people just want to be heard. I, a big part of our mission is not just being a voice for the voiceless, but to elevate the voiceless. Yes. Because people aren't heard and they want to be heard. And when they're not heard, some people come out screaming and it's ugly and it's nasty because it's rage and it may not be really true to how they believe, but this is the aggravated version of that. So, that's right. <laughs> and, but that's what happens when you try to be nice. Hey, I'm hurting too. Hey, listen to me. I'm hurting too. Hey, hey. Listen to me. That's what this rage is. That's right. People don't feel heard. They don't feel heard in their own homes. That's absolutely right. That's a hundred percent right. And this is one of the reasons, again, why I think the gifts of psychotherapy are so profound because we understand that dynamic in the family. So I'll give you a good example. So I had a little girl that came to therapy for bedwetting. And her parents were, she was 11 or 12. I don't remember how old, but she was old enough not to be. And we did something called a family sculpture. I described this in my book because it's a very classic case of what family therapy can do in a short amount of time. We did something called a family. Oh, so I talked to the parents first and I said, tell me what's going on. What do you think is going on with her? And they said, we don't know. We just, we don't have a clue. Okay. So I had the whole family come in and there were some siblings along with the sister. And we did this thing called a family sculpture where you, each person gets a chance to put the family in just some sort of little scenario. They don't act it out. They just say, my sister's in the bedroom doing her homework, blah, blah. And, my, and then she says, and then each person has a place that they are and a line that they speak. And everybody went, the siblings, the parents, and they were all, I don't even remember the scenarios they created, but they were all completely benign. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what is wrong with this picture? Well, sure enough, the girl who was the called the identified patient, so the one with the symptoms, the one with the biggest symptoms who's glaring and brings the family to therapy is called the identified patient in psychological language. She puts the parents opposing each other, screaming at each other to stop their drug use. 
Yeah. So she was the identified patient. She was calling for help for her family, for her parents. They weren't coming to therapy. They were saying everything was fine. We don't know what's wrong with her. And that's what our country is doing. We don't know what's wrong with all these mass shooters. We don't know why there's 10,000 people doing a peaceful demonstration. We're going to make America great again. That, I'm not, I don't, I was, I haven't been alive when America has been great. I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure we've ever been great based on what I believe, how we were founded and what this agenda has been at place. If I look at, I, not to turn this political, but right. I see what NATO's just continued Hitler's mission. So I, I, it's hard for me to, I'm, I like to consider myself a world citizen or a global citizen. I, yeah. this country to me needs to be, it needs a swift ass kicking in the form of some kind of, I don't know how to do, I don't know what the right way is, but it starts from leadership down yes. and it's broken. And it, the financial system is slavery that we're in. Of course, that's the right. new financial system is, that's a whole other conversation, but it's, we're broken. And the only way that we have a chance of healing is with truth. Truth that's of right. what's been going on, who's been pulling the strings that cause us to be pitted against each other, why right. the media is doing what they're doing to people, why the constant lies and gaslighting. Let's get to the root reason. And right. when we get there, what we're going to find out is you're not so bad after all. Yeah. I'm sorry I judged you. I'm mm -hmm. sorry that I judged you based off of X, Y. That's We're going to find that out. Oh, my God, you weren't really the enemy. It was them. I'm, and I'm sorry. But we can't even get there without truth. But then the truth won't even matter if no one has the ears to hear. So we got to make it safe for people to hear. And we have to make it safe for people to tell because that's the only way it's going to happen. It can't be retribution and revenge because people don't talk no. in, in a climate of retribution and revenge or verbal attack or humiliation or whatever else is happening out there to many of the truth tellers. And that's one of the basic premises of what I'm writing is that right now, the way our country is running mirrors the dynamics of an abusive family with the oh. same effects on all of us. Even if we're not personally being abused, I'm not being targeted right now in the grocery store, but I'm still at the effect. We are all at the effect, whether we're, the, whether we're suffering on the front lines or we're a little bit safer in our own venues. And the reason why I'll tell you is because, and you probably know some of this yourself, is that you can't see abuse happening without being abused, without being affected. You, it, being powerless to stop someone else being hurt is an assault on our own being. Yeah. The powerless we feel to do something about it, again, people either retreat. So many people today, I don't know if you experienced this, are will say things like, I just don't think we're going to make it. They've already <laughs> given up for the human race. We're going to um, make it. <laughs> Some of us will. I think we're going to make it too. And it's a lot in 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 reference to what you're saying. It's like, we have to make it safe to tell our truths. We have to do this. And for me, I think it's bottom up and top. It's what you do in your own life that changes the lives of your children and your wife and all the people around you and all the people that your podcast helps. And it's the top down of 
how do we influence? How do we get people in office that have values? And I call these, I coined this term, but I call the values of love and safety and peace and cooperation and valuing one another and inclusiveness and honoring of diversity and belonging and peaceful conflict resolution and healthy boundaries. I call that, I I call it high-tech human relations and everything else is low-tech human relations. And we're operating on some really low-tech human relations and we're affecting our whole human environment. It's not just the physical climate, it's the emotional and mental climate we live in that needs healing. And I think that some of the tenets of psychotherapy are, and again, there's many avenues to healing. Some of them are spiritual. Some of them are your faith. Some of them are mine. They may be your creativity. It may be your relationship with nature. It may be a cause that you support, like cleaning up the water or the air. Or, But whatever that road is, that is, that's what we need to make a national agenda. Yeah. And in, in order to do that, we there have to be multiple voices that speak truth to the powers that be that are keeping truth silent and silencing truth tellers. Yep, you're right. You're 100% right. And you said something it's from the bottom up. I think that's how you said it. But essentially, yeah. the greatest news I can give the world is the minute all of y'all that feel like you're down here in the gutter decide that you're going to stand up and you're going to start to try to live your life and you're going to start your path to purpose, start your healing journey, which is also the path to your purpose. The minute that happens, that's when the shift begins for everybody. Like it's not just you're you, the gutter has the highest to go, but that sounds daunting. However, it doesn't take that much to create a universal energetic shift. So if you listening right now today side, you know what? I'm going to at the very least say, I surrender my abuse, the pain from my abuse. I surrender my trauma to you. I surrender this addiction to you. I surrender this unhealthy relationship to you. I surrender these drugs to you. And just start there. Just do you, one person. But if enough one people do it, there is a shift in the atmosphere because we are all energy and we're all going to feel it. So we all, we get to do this. It's worth it. Because we don't have to look at these leaders. Very few. That's the pyramid that we have. This structure is a lie. It should be flipped upside down. That's Mm -hmm. the way it should be. Get out of the gutter. And the fastest way to do that is stand up. Stand up. Stand up for yourself. Stand up. And it's not as complicated as it's been made to seem. You don't have to stay down there. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to throw one thing in. And also, I think what I didn't realize, and it took me a really long time to realize, is that all that pain, all that darkness, all that suffering, all that unconsciousness that I was living in and acting out in my life with other people, that is the raw material that we're working into gold. So don't criticize it. Don't hate it. Don't try to deny it. That's what we're transforming. We're transforming something. The Rapunzel spinning straw into gold. That's our straw. We need something to spin into gold. And that's what it is. It's everything that we are. And so when you say surrender, it's to me, it's yes, surrender to it all. Every single thing you said, everything about myself and my gifts. I always wanted to be a writer. It was in my heart to connect through writing. You 
I'm sure you have the same thing where you've tapped into, how would you say that? Like what, what, besides what we see of you right now, which is obvious, is there anything else that you would say that you tapped into that became your gold that emerged from all that gutter material? Creativity. Yeah. You have an endless creative like flow, which is because I start again, even if you're for me using, I think we're all creatives to a degree. Yeah. Now, some people have it more than others, but I think initially, I think it's in our DNA to want to create, to want to build things to. Totally. And so whether it's through writing, through speaking, through sculpting, through painting, through music, whatever it may be that you can create through all of that. And just putting your thoughts on paper, your thoughts into art, your thoughts into a painting, thoughts into a song, that begins the process. And the cool thing about it is it's not one and done because once you've done that, then it builds and there's more and more. And that expression is not only healing, it's freeze and it inspires more. And from a, from just being a human and it's part of your gift and it's part of why you're here thing, you're also using that to let other people know that they're not alone. And let me tell you something, when you're going through it, y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of you go, huh? you feel like you're the only one on the planet to struggle with your sexuality. You feel right. like you're the only person on the planet to have HIV or to overdose or to get divorced or to be beaten, to be molested, to be taken advantage of, to be stolen from. You think you're the only one. Right. The minute right. you share it, you find out, no, you're not. And then, oh, here's the best part. That truth you attract your tribe. Mm. That is a cool thing. That is yeah. a super cool thing. Yeah. And you know what, just to uh, add a little to that too, is that when I was going through the darkest time of my recovery process, I read, I can't tell you how many books I read on sexual abuse. <laughs> you know, that just sounds awful, right? Who <laughs> read books on sexual abuse? But I had to find people that had my experience that were speaking my truth that so that and had they not written those books, I wouldn't have had that feeling of I'm not alone in that way. They're sharing their stories, painful, and then they were all recovery stories. And that also gave me hope. Yeah. They're sharing their truth and their journey. So you never know the effect that you're gonna have by sharing your truth and your journey with other people. Yeah. What and I there? You're 100% right. And I have zero. And look, is it weird to share all your stuff? Yeah, it is. It's really weird, especially when you actually meet people in public go, hey, I read your book. That's you're like, yeah, okay, listen, I'm not that guy anymore. But, but at the same time, the coolest thing about truth is you don't have to hide. And, you, you, and people are not going to like you. There's going to be people that love you and hate you anyway. So you might as well tell the truth because at least you know the people that are in your life are there for a reason. And that is awesome too. Phyllis, for the sake of time, I want to have you back when the book comes out. I'd love to. I love these initial conversations because I don't really know a lot about the people and who I get to know as we talk. And so I would love to have you back to talk about the new book. But please let the audience know like any last words you have, but also where they can follow you and support your journey. Yeah, I. it's always hard to find last words because it's paragraphs, but I would just say- <laughs> You can say a so, paragraph, it's cool. I'll just say, follow your, don't be afraid to follow your truth. Find the people that support you to follow your truth. Your truth is your healing and your truth is your gift. So those are my words because that's what I have found to be in my own life. And as you have said, absolutely invaluable and nothing like that. 
I have a website that is www.phyllislevitt.com and you can find the two books that I've already written on there. They're also on Amazon. They're called A Light in the Darkness and Into the Fire. And, and I hope to return and be writing more books in that series, but I'm very focused now on writing the book that I'm doing now, which is, I believe the title is going to be America in Therapy, and it will have a subtitle. And you can also find me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Those are the two main social media places where I post blogs and comments and thoughts. And, and I have a couple of articles on LinkedIn also, but that's it. Mostly www.phyllislevitt.com. And I just can't thank you enough. I have so, I feel so honored and happy to share with you today and to be on your show. I, I'm honored to have you and I'm glad we didn't wait. I initially said, oh, let's wait till your book comes out. Cause I can't wait to talk to you, but <laughs> this is definitely worth doing again on a different subject, which is going to be your book. But this has been an honor for me. And I just, God bless you for the work that you've done throughout your career that you're doing now. And the fact that you're still going it, to me, it's just awesome. And because the world needs people like you. And I'm grateful for you. And thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. And bless you for the work that you're doing. And the world needs people just like you. So thank you. Thank you. See you soon. See you soon.